David Brainerd was a missionary who was mightily used of God. He lived passionately for the Lord, and he died young. He actually did not even reach the age of 30. Um, much of his life was spent in labor for the Lord in what was not any kind of a, a big, famous, uh, well-known uh, sort of ministry or work. It's, it's quite a surprise, in fact, that the, the words and the life of David Brainerd have lived on a couple of centuries or more since he walked the earth. And yet, if you've ever read any of the words of David Brainerd or a bit about his life in ministry, you'd, you'd see clearly why they've um, persevered, because they're so impactful. And yet, David Brainerd was not unaware of his own failings, and he was very honest with his own journal and with others about his needs and his shortcomings. And I think that's one of the reasons why his impact has endured. Um, in his zeal for the Lord, he he wanted to obey God. He wanted to keep God's commands and wanted to keep his laws. Let me uh, share with you a bit of his own words of the struggle that this led him to, a crisis really at one point in his life. Speaking of his desire to keep God's law, this is what he said. I found it was impossible for me, after my utmost pains, to answer the law's demands. I often made new resolutions, and as often, I broke them. I suppose that the problem was due to carelessness and the need to be more watchful. I used to call myself a fool for my negligence, but when upon a stronger resolution and greater endeavors and close application to fasting and prayer, I found all attempts to fail. Then I quarreled with the law of God as unreasonably rigid. I thought if it extended only to my outward actions and behaviors, I could bear with it, but I found it condemned me for my evil thoughts and sins of my years, which I could not possibly prevent. Well, as we've journeyed now through book of Exodus now to chapter 20, and most recently in these last few months through the Ten Commandments, we know that these words are pervasive into every area of our life. Each of the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as they are known in the original, each of them is pervasively impactful in our life, not just our outward expressions, but inwardly. We understand that's what the Word of God does with these words. David Brainerd understood that well. And because he understood it so well, and because in his case he had a, such a, a zeal to honor God with what God had given, he found himself at a place of despair. And you know what? That was good. Because that was, in part, exactly what the law was given to do. We who may have no measure of David Brainerd's zeal, yet still find ourselves wanting when it comes to the demands of God. And we still feel the burden of not even being able to live up to our own standards, much less to his. David Brainerd, in that little excerpt that I read, demonstrates what we've come to know as the first use of the law. And we've talked about the three uses of the law several times in going through these Ten Commandments. The first use is to expose our sin and to expose our need. That's just one of, one of three divine works that the law of God does in us when we rightly understand it and then rightly apply it, apply it to ourselves. 
Here in Exodus 20, the foot of Mount Sinai, the Lord has gathered his redeemed people together out of slavery through wondrous works in redeeming them. He is forming them as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. And he has just now spoken to them the Ten Commandments, these ten words, in their hearing. This seems to be the one place at Sinai where they hear directly from God, not through Moses. And, and though these laws are, are just newly spoken, they're just fresh within the last moments, apparently, in time, in the passage that we're going to read today, though these have just been freshly spoken, they readily understand that they fall short of them. They readily understand that they are in desperate need of grace and of God's help. And now, the passage we read today, we see them reacting not only to God's words, but also to the vast display of his power. And so they respond. Pick up with me as we talk this morning about approaching God, looking through the lens of these Israelites at Sinai. Pick up with me in Exodus 20, the scene starting in verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. They stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Just these four verses for our consideration this morning. First observation from our passage is this. First, you need someone to help you know God. You need someone to help you know God. That may not sit right with you. You may immediately feel the hair on the back of your neck bristle a bit at that statement, but I believe it's absolutely the testimony of Scripture for every human being that's ever lived. You need someone to help you know God. Notice first that what we have here in verse, verse 18 of Exodus 20 is really just a restatement of something we've already seen before, not too long ago. Well, it's been a while for us. It's been about six months since we've seen it, but it would just be about two minutes ago if you were just reading through the book of Exodus. This is a restatement here of what the revelation has been at Mount Sinai this whole time that they have been there. Just back up with me into chapter 19 a little bit and start at verse 16, Exodus 19, 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. Did you hear it? Can you enumerate it? Uh, oh, lightning. Uh, oh, thunder. Oh, there's quaking. Oh, there's like smoke and there's fire and the trumpet. All of those. Check, 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 check. Same thing that we just got in Exodus 20:18. Back to Exodus 19, verse 16. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. What we have here after the recitation 
of the Ten Commandments after God speaks them from the top of Sinai in the hearing of all the people. We have a restatement to remind us of what the scene is. The question at this point is why? Why did God decide to do it this way? The Ten Commandments are powerful enough. They're the words of God. They're eternally true. They're a guide for us and a a conviction for us and a help for us in different ways. Why all of this, you know, smoke and light show to go with it? Because they're part and parcel with them understanding the nature of the God who gives these commands. We have said many times that the Lord gave his law to his people after he redeemed them. We understood that grace preceded law, that he had to come as their rescuer and their deliverer to bring them out of slavery and bondage that they could never accomplish themselves. And then and only then did did he give these commands so that they might stay with him, live with him, be near to him. But what he wants them to know is not only that he's done all this to redeem them, to bring them near to him, But he wants them also to know the nature of the God with whom they have to do. The God to whom they will draw near. And so he doesn't just tell them about that. He shows it to them on Mount Sinai. And keep in mind, these are the people who have already walked through the sea on dry land. The people who have already seen Pharaoh's army destroyed by the waves coming back. I've already seen all ten of the plagues and water from the rock and manna from heaven and been led by a pillar cloud and pillar fire day and night. And he says, as I give you these words, I want you to know who I am. Not because he's, he's trying to put on a show. Not because God is grandiose. No, just the opposite. Because God is God. And he says, look, I'm just going to give you a tiny glimpse. I'm going to tone it down and let you see a little bit of it there on the mountain. You need someone to help you know God. He gives just a peep into his presence here on Sinai with all of this, a little glimpse of his awesomeness. The Lord has given his mighty revelation so that it might make an impression that would linger in the minds of the people that they would know that he is God indeed. We've said before that this is a, it's a multimedia presentation, right? Long before we had such technology, pretty much touching on about all five of the senses. You'd say, well, I don't know if they actually tasted anything. I don't know. With that much uh, thunder and smoke and fire, there was probably a little bit of a taste in the air. What God is doing is letting them know he's not like anything they've ever met. All of the nations have gods. All those around ancient Israel in that day and all peoples on the face of the earth today have gods. Some of them don't necessarily build statues and have shrines and offer sacrifices, but everybody's got gods and every culture has gods. But Yahweh says, there's no one like me. There's no one like the Lord. You've never met anyone like me. You see, all these other nations, Israel, they have words, they have ceremonies, they have have religions, they have priests, and they have sacrifices, and they have cults. They have all the trappings and all the stuff. But can they split the sea? Can they bring food from heaven and water in the desert? And can they make the mountain burst into flame? Today, there are some who would say, you know, I would... I would believe in God if he would just show himself to me 
Ever met anybody like that? Anybody ever said that to you? They're from Missouri, right? The show me state. Just show me and I'll believe. If only, if only God would meet with me, then, huh, well then, of course, I'd know he's real. Well, you and I could tell them, friend, if God were to meet with you, you may not like that interview. Because in Scripture, when people see just the expression, just the manifestation, or even just the messengers of God, they fall on their face. They, they quake. Some of them fall down as if dead in some cases. You see, you need someone, and I need someone, to help me know God. This flies in the face of all of our American independence, doesn't it? It really does. It flies in the, in the face of all therapeutic religion of our day. It flies in the face of all expressive individualism. I am, I need nothing, I can, I will. The world revolves around me. I'm the definition of all things. No, far from it. You're a flea. In comparison to the eternally glorious, perfect, eternal God. You have dignity, yes. You matter, yes. Because God in his grace made you in his image and he gave those things to you. But all of those are derivative of him. I don't need someone. I can get to God. In fact, I don't even really need to get to God because I don't need God because I am God. I'm God of my destiny and God of my decisions and God of my life. You're going to meet him one day. And you may not like that interview. All the nations have gods, but there's no one like the Lord. Scripture says that the voice of the Lord strips the forests bare, that it, that it causes the deer to calve. That's what happens when, when God speaks. This is the voice that called light out of darkness. It's a pretty good trick. That called all things into existence out of nothingness. If he can do that at a word, what can he not do? Answer, there isn't anything he can't do. And his very voice can't even be endured unless he restrains it, unless he holds it back. Understand, as, as terrifying as Mount Sinai surely was, as, as shocking as it was to hear the very words of God spoken, God's really holding back. God's doing baby talk. He's like, you know, he's going easy on us if we understand him in his fullness. He's not like us. He's holy. And part of, part of being holy is that he is set apart. He's different. And in fact, so different, I don't know how to describe his differentness because all the descriptions that I'll give will just be more sameness of stuff that we know. Everything is at best a pointer to his differentness. Yes, on that day, brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, when we stand before the Lord, you and I together, you can throw your arm at me, around me, not at me, around me, and you can point at me, and you can laugh in my face, and you will be right to do so. And say, remember when you said that God was so different? You didn't have any idea, did you? And I'll be like, you are so right. Sometimes he gives us a glimpse of the manifestation of his power. And it is but the hem of his robe, Mount Sinai is. 
That is God worthy of our praise, worthy of our lives, worthy of our worship, worthy of our sacrifice, worthy of our devotion. Here in context, what it is doing, I believe, is letting the Israelites know both word and pyrotechnic display, letting them know they need someone to help them know God. And the Israelites get it. And so they ask for help. Verse 19. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Second observation from our passage is you want someone to help you know God. You want someone to help you know God. That's what we find here in the hearts of the Israelites. His holiness, his majesty, his power, his power is, is attractive. He is not like the, the maniacal tyrants of our world who have power and authority and they can put on a great show and they are utterly detestable. God is the exact opposite. He is attractive. He is beautiful. He is glorious in his holy majesty. And the people rightly say, we want to hear from God. We just can't handle it. We want to be near to God. We just can't do it. So you go do it for us, Moses, and then you come tell us, and then we'll have that, and that will be great. Now, Lord willing, um, this brief passage in Exodus 20 is going to be fairly simple for us this morning, but I want you to know it wasn't for me this week. Um, I struggled mightily um, because this isn't the message that I had thought uh, was going to come out, and it wasn't even the one that I really kind of wanted, in a way. I had a really cool message. It would have been great. It would have been wrong, but it could have been great. Um, and, and the more I wrestled, the, until at some point I finally realized the part of the reason I'm wrestling is that that's not what the passage says. And so I'm like, okay, let's just give in to what the passage says and figure it out. And of course, like always, what the passage says is better than what I was going to say. By the way, I didn't feel too badly because I was in good company. One of my favorite commentators had a similar take on the passage as where I wanted to go. One of my commentators, one of the, um, he's a godly man. I'll continue to read his stuff. He's great. I think he slightly missed it here. He makes the argument that in Exodus 20, what is going on is the people actually fail royally at this point. What they should have done instead is they should not have asked Moses to intervene, but instead they should have said, let us draw near. They shouldn't have pulled back. They should have leaned in. And, and I thought, boy, that would have been a great message, right? Don't you, I mean, don't you want that message? That sounds cool. But it's not what's going on in the passage, I don't think. And he does a good job of talking about the, the lightning flashes and talking about the smoke and talking about the trumpet. And he does his homework, and he goes back earlier than Exodus 20, which, by the way, there's only one and a half books of the Bible, stuff that they would have already known, and he finds connections for every one of those things. And he says, look here how this is meant to draw them near. Look here how this is meant to draw them near. The signs were all there. They should have drawn near. And I was, that's where I wanted to go anyway, and then I read his stuff, and I'm like, yeah, that's totally where we're going. The problem is the immediate context. So here's the key question. Can the people draw near? The answer, no. They can't. It's not even an option. Look back to chapter 19. Pick up with me 
in verse 12. I'm going somewhere with this because this is really the right understanding, I think, of what the Lord would have us take away. Chapter 19, verse 12. This is what the Lord says to Moses before Moses brings the people out to the foot of Sinai. Verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Could the people draw closer to God? No, they couldn't even touch the mountain. How many times does God need to say that to be clear? Once, right? Does he only say it once? No. Drop down a little bit further to verse 21. After the people are brought to the foot of the mountain, we already read 16 through 19. Look at what he says again in verse 21. Then the Lord spoke to Moses as Moses is up on the mountain. Go down, he says to Moses, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. What is going on? God is at pains to protect the people from their own pious best intentions to break through into his presence because he knows if they try it, they'll die. And, and he, didn't, he didn't just say it once. He says it super clearly in reiteration. In fact, I think three times, depending upon how you count in this passage. So are the people wrong to call for a mediator? No. It is the only option left to them. Now, I will say there is one thing in the passage that's demonstrating their movement, and it is a negative statement. Where are they at the end of verse 18, after all the Ten Commandments have been spoken? You can read it for yourself, right? They trembled and stood where? At a distance. It's reiterated again, right, at the, end of, at the beginning of verse 21. The people stood at a distance. That's interesting. Go back to chapter 19 and read verse 17. Where did the people start? Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood where? At the foot of the mountain. Somewhere in the course of the speaking of the Ten Commandments, the people in their fear have decided that they might just move back a little bit from the edge of the mountain. As the lightning flashes and the thunder and the quaking and the trumpets and the smoke and everything else is going on. But yet I think there is a right motive in their heart that they say, you know what, I'm not only not going to touch the mountain, I ain't going to get within, you know, 150 feet of it or whatever. I'm going to stay a good distance. But in their heart, there's a desire to know the God who's, who's rescued them. And so they say to Moses, we can't handle it. We can't handle when God speaks from heaven. By the way, do you think that God knew that this would be their response? You know the answer to that. You can go and read Deuteronomy 5. Um, we won't do that today. If we had more time, we would. I, I think what we're going to find and, and the, the track we're walking with Exodus 20 is, is utterly proven by reading Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5 will be the rehearsal of these events about 40 years from now. 
when all of the older generation who stood there at Sinai have all died in the wilderness, the younger generation has grown up, and God is telling the people, look, y'all were there. You were little kids then, but now you're grown up and you're adults. And he tells them, here's what happened, and God spoke to you, and here's what you all responded. And here's what you'll find in Deuteronomy 5, is there's not just the recitation of the event, there's a little bit of interpretation. And what's key is in that interpretation in Deuteronomy 5, Moses tells the people, and God said it was good when you asked for a mediator. That's not the exact words, but that's what it says. Deuteronomy 5, God commends them. He doesn't condemn them. He commends them for asking for a mediator. Because this was God's plan all along. Was it? Yep, one more time, go back to chapter 19 and take a look at verse 9, Exodus 19.9. The Lord said to Moses, this is before the people are even brought to the foot of the mountain. Exodus 19.9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. What is God doing with Moses? God says, look, I have a plan for salvation for all of the world, for all history, and you're just a tiny little piece of it, Moses, but here's your job. You're going to be the one who stands in between God and the people. So Moses, I'm going to do this in a way. I'm going to let them hear me speak so that they can't walk away and say, you know, all the nations have gods, but Moses says that we have this God and he says these things. Well, you heard it with your own ears. All the nations have gods. Moses claims that, that Yahweh can do these things. Well, you saw it with your own eyes. And you ended up deciding, I need help. Please, please, let somebody else help me. You see, that's the paradigm. That's the paradigm of God is in, in his incredible majesty. And it's, it's really an incrossable chasm unless God crosses it for us. Here, God crosses it by making a way through Moses. You and I want someone to help us know God because we were created to know him. If, if you don't think you want that help, then either there's something wrong with your understanding of you or there's something wrong with your understanding of God. But if you get those two things right, you will want that help. And every one of us who knows Christ say, yeah, oh, I want that help and I, I want it bad. Third observation. Third observation is you have someone. You have someone to help you know God. That's what we find here in this generation at Sinai, verses 19 and 20. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Remember, in chapter 19, God had ordained that this would be Moses' role. God would speak to Moses and Moses would speak to the people. But his role as a mediator to help them approach God is so much more than just the words God put all of these limits on the mountain for the sake of the people's protection. And so Moses' job, in part, is also to help protect the people. It's to guide them and to remind them. 
Moses is the one, the only one who's going to come near, all the way near. Yes, the elders and the priests will get to go up on the mountain a little bit. We'll find out later in Exodus. And um, Aaron, the high priest, will get to go a little bit further up with Moses on the mountain. But there's a special place that only Moses will get to go. But even he will never get to see God in all of his fullness, not while he lives in the flesh. Moses is the one who will go up for them. And so God has provided because he knew this need. You know, it's great for us today. Even though sometimes we live in our arrogance, we live in a, in a culture that says, I don't need anything, or, you know, we, we, we don't understand the majesty of God. God has already anticipated the need and provided so that when the time comes that we do suddenly realize, I need someone and I want someone to help me know God. God says, good, I got that covered. The Israelites are at that point. And lo and behold, God has provided already. Let's talk a bit about this one first that God has provided for Israel, Moses. Moses has now long been doing this job where he speaks to God and then, um, I'm sorry, God speaks to him and then he speaks to the people for God. And sometimes he takes messages back to God. Sometimes um, those are complaints from the people. He's long been doing this job, carrying the messages back and forth. But here we see him doing even more. I want you to notice right in our passage, he doesn't just give messages that God specifically spoke, but he actually helps the people understand what God is doing. He explains God to them. Look at 20 again. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him might remain with you. First of all, you need to know this is one of my favorite um, passages in, in all of Scripture because Moses, if you boil it down, basically says to the people, look, don't be afraid. Instead, be afraid. You're like, that is a really strange message, Moses. I mean, it's all there. You can read it. Um, what's the point? He's explaining what God is doing. When the Israelites see and feel the quaking and the fire and the power they rightly know this is but a glimpse of God, and they could be judged and destroyed in a moment. But Moses, who stands in the presence of God, it's not as though God said, hey, when they do this, say that. No, now he's just doing the job of a mediator, not giving the specific words, but explaining the meaning of what's going on. And he says, look, when you guys see the fire, when you, when you hear the thunder, when you feel the quaking, when the trumpets sound, don't think that that is God's will to destroy you. That's the interpretation that he gives, that the people need to hear. Because any of us standing at the foot of the mountain might think, this is it. I'm, I'm going home, Bessie. No more for me. Moses says, no, God has come to do something else, but not to destroy. Why would he have redeemed you? Why would he have brought you out with a with a, an outstretched arm and with a mighty hand to show you that you are his special possession. So he explains to them two things here, explaining to them what they're seeing. This is not a demonstration for your destruction. That's the first. And the second, this is a demonstration for your sanctification. 
This is a demonstration not to destroy you, but to refine you. Read the rest of verse 20. Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. God reveals himself in his power to make an impression, to demonstrate it is not a small thing when you disobey my words. If you disobey and you continue to breathe, it's not because transgression against the one true God of all creation is a light thing. It's because his mercy is great. It's because his grace is ever-present. It's because he's long-suffering and patient not to bring judgment immediately. And he says he's come to you today not for destruction but to draw you nearer. And so the people, I believe, rightly respond based upon the authority of Deuteronomy chapter 5 with the best that they can do given the boundaries that they have to say, good, you keep talking to God for us because we want that, but we just can't do it. And Moses says, let what you've seen, though, make its mark an indelible impression on your, on your mind. Have you had those moments of your life? I wonder if you have. My guess is many of us have. When you've just sensed a sense of just being naked before God in his holiness and how terrifying it could be. What a gift, really, right? It might have scared you out of your socks. My guess would be it, it would scare you towards obedience scare you towards grace, scare you towards seeing what your need is and what my need is. Praise God that, that God has given someone to help them draw near to God. Because if Moses didn't come and explain it to them, then you'd have a whole fight among the nation of Israel as to what are we supposed to do with that thing we saw in Sinai. In fact, there would be at least 11 different denominations, right? Or whatever, of here's what we understand and here's what it be. No, Moses came and spoke and said, he wants you to feel the weight of this. So he explains, he teaches, he's guiding them. That's what a good mediator does. He explains God to them. Know what else, notice what else Moses does to help them know God. He brings the people to meet God. We saw that back in chapter 19, verse 17. Again, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Nobody, when God descended on Mount Sinai and Israel was camped over here, thought, hey, we should just run over there and check that out. Moses came down and he told them, look, y'all are going to go consecrate yourselves. You're going to do this and this and this, and you're going to wash and be clean. And on the third day, you're going to come and present yourselves. And you know what allowed them to draw even as near as they could just to the foot of the mountain? It was the mediator bringing them near because that's what a mediator does. He draws two parties closer together. How big is the chasm between these two parties? Answer, infinitely vast is how big the chasm is. A perfect, holy, eternal, God, broken, sinful people. I know some of them help old ladies across the street and they do other occasional good things, but it is still an infinite chasm. But they have someone to help them know God and bring them to meet with him. Isn't it so encouraging in Hebrews chapter 4, the knowledge that our great high priest has gone before us? Isn't that knowledge so freeing when we feel like, Lord, I failed so badly? 
chasm is so huge. There is no way I can draw near to you. Hebrews 4 says, we now can approach the throne of grace with confidence, with confidence, not in ourselves, not because God lowered his standards, <laughs> with confidence because our great high priest, our great mediator is perfect. Well, I get ahead of myself, but you all know that's where we're going. He brings people to meet God. And much more, if we had the time, we could look further. We will see Moses in his time in the Pentateuch, in these opening five books of Scripture, we will see him actually make atonement for the people. We will see him through prayer intercede for the people. The nation is spared on the basis of the prayers of Moses. We'll see him personally suffer for the people and sacrifice for the people because sometimes those two parties can be obstinate. Well, in this case, there's only one. God ain't. He just is, but we are obstinate and set in our ways, and so the mediator sometimes suffers, and so Moses will. In the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, as God's redeemed people, they had someone. They had someone to help them know God. Moses was not perfect. No way. He was just a man, but he was chosen by God for this role. And he was a gift to the people, a gift that they needed. Fourth and finally, then, and you are so surprised that this is where we're going to end up, right? Fourth and finally, you know God's son to help you know God. This is what Moses is pointing to. This is why getting a right understanding of the nature of the people's hearts and what God thought of their response is so important is because all of this, not until it's seen rightly, does the, 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 the full multivaried color, does, the, does the, the glorious array of Jesus' glory show forth, not until we see how all the pieces work. You and I, if you know Christ, you know God's Son to help you know God. Verse 21, so the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Notice the strong contrast that's in this passage. That really is the point of the whole passage. The only thing that's under debate, the point of the passage, is the people stood at a distance twice, and Moses went near. That's the point. The only question is, is the people staying at a distance a result of sin, or is it because they got something right? My argument is it's more of the latter than the former based on Deuteronomy 5. Yeah, they moved away. They're, they weren't perfect. They got a little too scared. They're not comfortable with God, and that's a healthy thing at some level for sure. But the passage now clearly contrasts Moses with the people, and that's the point. Moses gets to go up into the very presence of God. He approached where? Into the thick cloud where God was. He went up into majesty. He went up into mystery. He went up into darkness. Moses does what the people cannot do. He alone is the mediator who draws near. In the same way, we have a mediator. And he does what we cannot do. And he draws near in a way that we never could do. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the truer and better Moses 
He's more Moseser than Moses is. Hebrews 6 tells us that Christ has now gone in behind the veil. And the imagery there is that tapestry, that screen that separated out the most holy place that only the high priest could go in one day out of the year, one person for all of the history of the nation of Israel ever got to go into that place. Hebrews, using that imagery, says that the Lord Jesus went in behind the veil and he took up residence. He sat down because it was his home. It was easy for him. And it goes on and says that he was our forerunner, a forerunner for us so that we might have a hope that is an anchor, sure and steadfast. God's Son is now there to help us know God. So just as Moses did this job of a mediator, so Christ did that same job, but for you and for me. And he did it perfectly. The people couldn't go there, so Moses went for them. Christ goes there because he is the better mediator. He is the one who does it now for us. Yes, Christ is is more than just a mediator, but he's he's certainly not less. 1 Timothy 2.5, you can jot it down if you want, but that's the passage that proves. If you doubt this morning, if you're unhappy with the first point, you need someone to help you know God. If you doubt that, then the answer is 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one way to know God. Even as Moses was mediating, he was mediating presumed upon the future grace that would come through Christ when he accomplished atonement on the cross eventually. That's not clear at this point, but it will be, and it is now in our day. There is one forever mediator for all men, and if you know him, then he is the one who does all the work of the mediator Moses and so much more, even more because he is truly and more fully the mediator. So he, he atones for the people like Moses did, but in his case, he atoned by giving himself his own blood and his own life. He intercedes for his people, but oh, it's so much better than Moses' prayers because Hebrews 7 says now that he ever lives to intercede at the right hand of the Father for those who are his children. He is always praying for his children. And yeah, he sacrifices, but he sacrificed himself to the utmost more than Moses ever could. What else did Moses do? Does Jesus do it? Well, I mentioned to you a moment ago that that Moses explains God, right? Verse 20. Hey, guys, this is what all this stuff means, and here's what it doesn't mean, but here's what you need to know. Good, thanks. Does Jesus ever explain God? Yeah, everything Jesus does explains God. John chapter 1, verse 18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's what He does. Moses did the job as a mediator of bringing the people to God. Does Christ do that? Yes, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. The irony is that Christ, the Son of God, is not only the mediator between God and man, but he actually is God who is the mediator himself. Just happens to be that he's the mediator plus. 
but he's not less than the one to help us know God. I know for most of us who know Christ, this passage in Exodus chapter 20, I think rightly understood for ourselves, is really a blinding flash of the obvious, isn't it? You've, you've learned so many things this morning that you had no idea of when you came in. But that's okay, because we far more often need to be reminded than we need to be taught. And this is one of those places where we can see it in all of its pyrotechnic glory, and we can be humbled and reminded of the awe that we should not take for granted what Christ has done in his power and his mercy to come near to us. He who could go all the way into the very presence of God was with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity and always will be, and yet now draws us in. Because seeing that, reading it and knowing it and feeling it now can become, I pray, Lord willing, more real in our own lives this week, whatever your struggle might be. Look at all that Moses did. Look at all that the Israelites felt. Look at all that they needed. And then shake your head and just say, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to what my Savior has done for me. As I already mentioned, Hebrews chapter 4, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Or Hebrews 7.25, can we draw near to God? Yes. Yes, we can. One way. Hebrews 7.25, we draw near to God through Christ. Therefore, Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our good Father, we praise you that you knew our every need and you anticipated it. You knew the every need of the nation of Israel and you anticipated it. You have always had your people, your messengers, your ways and your means to reveal yourself, to make a way but we know that they all culminate in Christ, your son. And we thank you afresh for Jesus today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are my mediator because I have broken the Father's laws. I've broken your laws, that you have come to take the punishment and stand in my place. You have come to offer the only resolution to the problem, full atonement by your own body and life. Thank you that you bring us to God through yourself. Lord, we ask today any of our friends here who may not yet know Christ and be brought near, would you bring them to the stunning yet subtle realization of their need for a mediator? And would you show them how richly and fully you complete the task, how you fulfill the role, how you, Lord Jesus, have done everything to make it possible to bring us to God? This week, Lord, I pray. As we go out into this world, may we, may we have on our lips how great our Savior is and how much he is willing to allow people to be brought to the Father through him. Thank you, Lord. Use us in that way and be with us. We praise you for all this. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Have a great week. <clears throat> Pardon me. If you want to... Uh... Know more about the Shine Ministry, you can catch Marcy up front here. Thank you.